Nuala Nigonal is in the unusual position of being a nationally and internationally recognised poet who has chosen to write in the Irish language. She's done this by allowing and encouraging established English language poets to augment her work with renditions of their own. And so a range of interpreters have now added their own understandings to Nuala's original sensibilities. For Nuala, that process started more than 30 years ago, when she began to mine rich seams of Gaelic culture in search of the raw material which she could rework and make resonate with new meaning and relevance for her and for a wider community. Literary critic Kevin McGillalay helps place her work in context. She's a poet with a number of fidelities, if you like, one of which is to the Irish language, her chosen medium. Uh, She's a poet who grew up, as any Irish language poet of her generation did, in a predominantly English-speaking world, who yet chose to write in terms of poetry, at least, exclusively in Irish. She's, of course, commented on that poetry and written in prose in English. Um, She's a poet who also grew up in the wake of the first wave of of the women's movement, as it would have been known in feminism um, subsequently. And therefore, she has a vitality to the expression of the experience of being a woman in a particular place in time, several particular places in times, in Ireland largely for, for much of her life, but also in Turkey. And she's a poet who has a fidelity to what might have been, perhaps 20 years ago, a neglected body of uh, inherited material, that is uh, Irish folklore, the folklore and storytelling, particularly uh, traditions of of the Gaeltachti, of the 20th century Gaeltachti. Very early on, there's a short um, sequence of uh, poems around the uh, character of Moor Moon, um, that was in, in, in the early 70s, this sort of um, monstrous, almost fearful, grotesque female figure um, who is an embodiment of, of sexual threat and sexual power, which was an obviously um, attractive figure for a woman writing in the early 70s, i say, in, in, in the early years of feminism. Similarly, the figure of Maeve, the uh, politically powerful f- figure of, of Maeve and the sexually threatening figure of Maeve, if you like, s- sexually dominant figure of Maeve in the whole Cúchulín cycle was interesting to her. And also, of course, the mischievous and critical subversion of that, the macho figure of Cúchulín himself as part of her series of poems called A Tain, a second Tain, a, a revisioning, a re-envisioning, if you like, of the whole Tain Bo Cúchulín, the Iliad of Irish literature, if you like, that central prized gem of, of early Irish literature. More recently, uh, the long series of poems on the Muruch, which is closest perhaps to an intermittent concern she's had with the figure of, of Ban and Lassa, the woman from the fairy fort, that sometimes welcome, sometimes feared other woman figure that's haunted her, her poems for, for much of the last 20 years. Nuala Nigonal has peopled her poetry with exotic and sometimes erotic creations. Some of these owe their origins to classical or Gaelic literature some to the living language of the Kerry Geltacht. Her arrival at a position where she could transform and personalise those riches came after a number of heightened linguistic experiences in Ireland and abroad. Nuala encountered her first major language shift when she arrived in Irish-speaking West Kerry from Lancashire, when she was sent to live with an aunt when she was five. After university in Cork City, she moved to Amsterdam briefly and, shortly afterwards, as a young expectant mother, she settled down in Turkey with her husband when he returned there to his family home. She was once more 
swimming in the sea of language. Talarag na nahrahashin agursi changa agus chauli, lusonru era seher agus era jarku. I learnt my Irish at the age of five when I was literally and figuratively um, farmed out to my aunt in the girls. I had previously lived in Lancashire. We spoke Irish in the house, so I actually rem- uh, recognised, I mean, I could understand the words people were saying to me. But I think actually that that was very traumatic for me and I have blanked out on how painful it was, um, you know, being left in West Kerry like that at the age of five. And... Um, you know, not seeing my father and mother for months and end. My father was in Ireland, so he's come down every few months. Um, but um, that sense of abandonment and everything else. So I'm sure at some level I was um, dredging up material about that that I probably can't deal with in any other way yet, um, you know, creatively. I've only begun to be able to think about it recently. And um, I'm sure that that level, that register of Irish was was kind of you know, stamped on me, branded on me, as you'd brand uh, an animal. You, you know, that level of language was branded on me in a situation which was very painful. Uh, but on the other hand, I had a creative outcome because I, you know, learned that type of Irish. And it's still the Irish that I, that register of Irish I like best. The colloquial, the, the, the really rich, ringing, resonant, um, colloquial Irish of West Kerry. When I came to Dublin from West Kerry, I was very lonely, and it's because I didn't have a group of friends, you know, who were, who were good traditional storytellers like like uh, there are back in West Kerry. Uh, Joe Daly was still alive, and the Bob Fertier, um I used to listen to her a lot. And uh, Joe Daly said to me um, to go into the Department of Folklore, and I went in, and it was miraculous the effect it had on me. I felt that here was the Irish. You know, these are transcripts of oral performances, and this was the kind of Irish that I heard around me in Kerry in the 50s. And I got really interested in the linguistic registers, the richness, richness of the vocabulary, and also the, um, the stories, the, the, the motifs. And um, I discovered that, and then I started doing this Banalassa poems, you know, doing all the stories about the lists, and that the list was this... I suddenly realised that all this extraordinary repertory of folk motifs could be used as an artistic way of dealing with, you know, psychological reality. And, you know, I was just, it was a great breakthrough when I discovered that. And then I sort of worked out different ways of doing it. In the beginning, I used Banalassa, this kind of woman from the fairy fort, and um, some of the versions I got from stories, some of them were things that actually happened to me, and then I mixed them all up and... And, you know, as you do, you know, n- no story or no poem is, a, is, you know, completely from one source. You know, you take them from, well, basically you, you know, um, use everything that's around you as loot. Nola's immersion in the world of oral literature has allowed her contact with the reservoir of powerful traditional images, derided by some other writers as being too old-fashioned for them. One of Nola's literary achievements has been the refashioning and repositioning of these treasures in a way that answers to her personal and artistic needs. Ta leo femanyach janta igen kritik mori nyakion er tradition negelig trichele. Agus ta sulgier kache iki er lanunhus, agus er ach nohan an tradition chin, salitriat hoimshra, guahereha ignamra ili. 
Now, what has been happening in, in recent decades, and particularly in the work, as more and more women writers have sort of entered the canon and, have st- and younger women have started writing in Irish, there has been uh, a movement back, if you like, into traditional material, um, a rereading of traditional material, a rewriting of traditional material, but also a new attitude towards that traditional material. It isn't a case of sort of transmitting the material intact as it is formed, uh, as, as, it is a, 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 as, it, as it reaches the writer. It's more a case of reworking the material, rereading the material and reinterpreting it. Now, I think there's a huge difference between that traditional material and what is actually being done with it in the work of these poets, and particularly Noel and Igonel. The traditional material itself tends to be more graphic. It's lacking in sort of psychological content. Um, it's concrete. Um, it has plot lines, but it does not have an inbuilt sort of interpretation. It's left to the audience, if you like, then to interpret it. Now, that traditional material is now being interpreted by folklorists, and the, the idea of how that traditional material might have been received by traditional audiences is also being interpreted by folklorists. But what happens in the work of the creative writers is the traditional material is being used and reworked in a manner that is non-traditional. There is the, the, the main thing that's happening in the work of Nolini Ronal is a personalisation of the traditional material. What was an objective description in a folklore text becomes subjectified and um, this happens sometimes by the employment of the first person in place of the more objective third person. But even when the third person is employed, as in this series of poems, the Marucha Rimic, that third person has a particular relationship with the the teller or the narrator in the poem. In fact, it's very obvious in the Numerucha Rimic that the third person is the mother figure and that the narrator is in a very close, though in a very sort of problematic, um, intimate relationship with that person. So you have a psychological dimension then which is totally absent from the original material. What does happen though curiously is that the use of the traditional material in the new poem actually in my opinion sends the reader or the listener back to the original material as well. Makes the reader curious about the original material. Often um, Nola Nirona's poetry has been read as an example of the continuity of tradition that she's, she is using the tradition of a particular Gaeltacht um, region and that she, her, her poetry then is a, a reflection of an unbroken tradition. Now one could also look at it in a totally different way and say that what the, the self-conscious use of traditional material is actually um, an illustration of the huge effort that's required to overcome the sense of rupture and that also then the, the, the use of the material in itself, it's, it's more akin to the sense of tradition as surrender and as betrayal than the sense of tradition as continuity, that it's not just handing over, that it is actually, um, that it is handing over rather than handing down. You know, the, the sense that if, if a writer uses traditional material, are they affiliating themselves then to a particular tradition or are they actually making their own of that tradition? Are they changing it and critiquing it? And I think there's much more of that in Nolini Ronald's poetry than actually the sense of continuity that she's taking it lock, stock and barrel and just reproducing it, that the sense of, that there's interpretation um, built into the process. Definitely um, the Weidenborough that we have way back in my very first book um, on Dahl Drine and it was translated by Michael Hartnett and it's in um, Selected Poems Royal uh, she's the same um, character basically the same mask I suppose Yeats would call it you know, mask, uh, Yeats was into that a lot and, uh, 
I'm very interested in it. I mean, I think that's what I learned from John Berryman years ago was that you can have different persona and different characters like that walking around in poems. And they can have an ambiguous relationship with the writer and with the, the narrator. Um, definitely, um, I'm very close to that mermaid. And she's probably the same person who was unearthed afterwards as Mvruch. At the time, I, I was, it was quite personal, actually. I was using the mermaid to describe my own situation. I was living in this house down in West Kerry with my two children. My husband was still in back in Turkey. And I was feeling... I think I, I really have problems with separation. And I was feeling very um, anxious and um, lonely. And uh, so I, I imagined this mermaid who was a sort of um, uh, an extension of my personality, really. It's just that she took on a much wider resonance and a much wider imaginative, um, how will I say, scope when I wrote the Morocco poems. For those schooled in the mermaid narratives of Walt Disney or Hans Christian Andersen, the choice of such a legendary creature might seem a bit twee. But Nula's Muruach, or mermaid, lives a harsh, traumatic existence. These fish out of water have turned their backs on the sea and their past life, now surviving by living in denial of their origins. Cool Lekina. Uh, it's a multi-purpose metaphor. When when Nolan Yihonel, um alights on a particular body of, of traditional material, more and more she is aware of the various metaphorical purposes it can serve. So that the, the figure of, of the merman or mermaid, the entire tribe who are forced to abandon their traditional milieu and live on land and there are a number of folklore ta- uh, tales in Irish folklore that, that talk about that specific traumatic transition from being a water dweller to being um, a, a, a rather uncomfortable person dealing with an entirely different way of being in the world. It's quite a powerful uh, metaphor uh, for a poet who wishes to address the notion of trauma, but th- trauma at a personal level uh, due to perhaps the repressed memories of some horrendous experience in early infancy, or in fact at a public level, the, the, the communal notion of trauma, the communal notion of forced linguistic change, of, uh, of, of fo- forced, if you like, um, lamented cultural transition, that um, the figure of, 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 of this tribe forced to live other than they did traditionally and forced to repress the memory of uh, of their traditional ways of being has proved a very fruitful theme for her to follow in these uh, to pursue and to elaborate in this protracted series of poems on the Murucha, the Murucha Hrimig, the the the, the Mur people, if you like, on dry land, uh, in her in her most recent Irish language book, Cad um, Einish. The Murucha Hrimig. Erangari Glamsa, Eragunsha the Stach and Tam the Low is a Nani Ajimuaka. Tagangalar Knish Mar Eyre is Grisakara. Is Kalagrifin on Riskrihe is few on Lohene. Rudnar Hahedar as a Noige is Narklachta the Riv and Nabanta Yachtracha. Eda Gumraskarl is a Dien of Glakuichta Leshna Lani Riga. Darlo Tagin Nare Gakpyukko Hulk Leshing Yena Mula. Gurma Vinchia in 
Mrabuk fa kuplaruta de vakan and ta hau. Katharesha of wintergone dev haul the noun is a olivu de grim ishke. Conagyog and fias winnen avla is no nedoignis dine ishtig, it er kurt is kricken, it er fjol is leher. Denter kerin on sundo, a harigin on niv. Kahan namano mwinki troma hartvenamanol is na ferif kutaha deraga. No rudder be a clodok rian the skulvach. Deren on dochturlem gwilin shinishan er lar in a lanaka. Katter and ribatuhil emar a gown a stihe, no ekimilkama le care, saragnagashi shahar nashanta. A gulishum knag, a year in shedove, no harlian and lace. Tadaru glan dientaka fenamsa er huha merahil nagashi dine. Is our clashkadal Nimil Moors that I gone? Or Mashak, Irene Fosse, a shaska erangui, is Tugan Shed part in a book here. Couldn't she fear in a crisha, either eat, agas a. Sanched and found a gown lesh, a gula kaikish, no vlak bowls to clay, a down to Lumon the Gruige, is barren the hingene, an ung of oud a fuerder on Leah's soul, is Nespeakli in our herd the river her. Tashe glowens on the goni, a down to Kirtahan the Ganehaka, and Ilvius soil is Norichlo. A varin doiv is a hidden in Yule and slobber is in Glohok Chuv, dar diaviat. Near a green should dene, a glen as a nanim is as a slinero, or hen and green malay. Tashe see to match is Gadang and the Ganga Hilaginica, Grabon and Fragart the Glech Helter, no the Glech Shiri. Nihinik Farna Banaka er Hushin nor Labagamachagosa Sheen to Edrona Tinne. Thar Logor Kordu and Dinavarev Esha. Ni Milo Klocha Hortishtach and Tig de Luin. Dadurak Lanov Leshishtache Dache, the Kurfi Echoler Echava Macharisht. Ta Kurna Kunaka. Vogan Narati Arig, Arienta Fos, Sir Klahaka Kosinta and Nagine. Gak Town Kostiev Neglib Big Brufarige, Seg Bruska Rake. Fokil is Kupdrishtach, Maravak Caravan, Karige, Erlene Varatidin, Revoilin and Rerilikon, Aimshare and Taharin. Fokil a Hugan Skarl and the Shanre Foslo. Fokil er Nos, Maas Raur, Kaum Shang, Menamin Ualig. In the framing story, Namru Hoshrimig. I have all the things that they um, that they're in denial about. That would be the the psychological term to call it. All the things that reminded them of their life in the sea. They just don't want to know about them. I've noticed that about people in America. I noticed that about not uh, about the first generation that's born in America. They do not want to be reminded of the 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 old country. And it's not just Irish. It's also say Scandinavians. Um, I was once in a house where they had the most beautiful. Um, Scandinavian furniture. Um, it was out in near Minnesota, and I asked, you know, this is gorgeous. And they said they picked it up for nothing because some bright spark got the idea that the, the Americans of Scandinavian origin were coming up in the world and they were getting very well off. That they would be great idea to bring in some of the wonderful furniture, uh, Scandinavian furniture, uh, for you know people to buy. And when he brought it over, and nobody would buy it because everyone wanted to buy the kind of chair that George Washington sat on. So, uh, so it, then it was going for for tuppence. You know, this marvelous, you know, Scandinavian furniture. So it's not just us. 
it's um, everyone, you know, that happens in the first generation that just don't want to be reminded of what was left behind. Maybe it's too painful, maybe, you know, to, to have to make a go of it as an American citizen, you've got to sort of, you know, you can say you're of Irish descent, all right, but you basically an American. And so you've got to um, turn yourself deliberately and, uh, you know, with some effort, quite aggressively, um, away from and against um, the old um, ways. And I, that's, what I, that, that's the basic idea behind the the, the framing story in the beginning about all these Pishogs that they just don't, that they put behind them. Even though they believe in them um, uh, implicitly, they don't want to be told or they want to be reminded of them. Paul Muldoon has translated many of Nula's Muruach poems, including his version of Namaruha Ashrimig. The assimilated merfolk. Barely have they put in on this bare rock, then their scales start drying out, and they suffer such skin complaints as wind gall and blotching, and get pins and needles from the breezes, never mind the zephyr. Unaccustomed as they were to either on the underwater plains, where they used to wrestle and besport themselves with the princelings. As far as they're concerned, Moonstroke is every bit as serious as too much sun. They turn blue after Moonstroke, and yellow after the sun has laid them low. If they happen to get shingles, or when a boil comes to a head, there's no herb or native remedy that will offer any respite, except maybe a couple of roots of hellebore from the opposite bank of the river the hellebore itself prepared somewhere over water, thereby ensuring that the she-grub won't get wind of it and burrow deeper between the outer and inner subcutaneous layers between flesh and hide. A poultice is made from this, which draws out the poison. The women wear heavy neck ornaments, while the men favour red kerchiefs, anything at all that hides the signs of their gills. The doctor reports that the uvula is displaced in the vast majority of them. The topmost hair of their heads must either be torn out by the roots or thoroughly stiffened with wax before the uvula snaps back. Did you hear the snap? The doctor inquires of them when the cure takes effect. By now they've clean forgotten the dizzying churning of the deep currents and from the abyss the whale's antiphonal singing. From time to time they hear a snatch of it on the wind, and call it the fairy tune. They make a sign of the cross between themselves and it. They fling the air of the tune into the heap of leftovers, or hide it away in the same hole in the ditch where they dispose of hair clippings and nail parings. The ointment they got that time from the eye doctor, those eyeglasses they never wore. The air of that tune is forever breaking down along with the menstrual rags, the menstrual blood they shy away from, reminiscent as it is of the ooze and muck from which they sprang. They never answer anyone who calls them by their name or surname once the sun's set, for they've determined, and hold it now as an article of faith, that to answer such a mortal call is to answer an eternal one. Not one of them man or woman, would stretch out on a sofa or a settle bed if their legs were to be turned toward the fire. They associate this with the laying out of the dead. They don't like it if a stone is brought inside the house on a Monday. If a child were to bring one in, he'd be compelled to bring it out again. They really take against that. 
The high spring tides leave their mark on the sea walls of their mines. The edge of every breaking wave ragged with flotsam and jetsam and other wreckage. Words carried ashore like the shells of sea urchins and left at the high water mark when they get the head staggers at the time of the Saturday moon. Words that are still imbued with the old order of things. Phrases like wide thighs, narrow waist, hair brain. The Marucha Rimig sequence is, is quite a long sequence and um, there is a thematic unity obviously to it and there's a certain amount of repetition in the, the use of imagery. But there's also particular poems within it that speak to particular experiences. A lot of the poems in it, one can read famine narratives into them. A lot of the poems, a number of the poems, one could read Holocaust narratives into them. There are particular poems where sexual abuse is dealt with in them. And there's an intergenerational tension in a lot of them. My own view, sort of overview, my own overall interpretation of the whole sequence is that they are about a process of transformation. And I've been reading stuff, um, material in relation to acculturative stress, the concept of what happens to somebody when they have to make themselves suitable to a culture that is different. And there are a lot of different things involved, but there are um, ramifications at the level of personal hygiene, at the level of cultural expression. There are always health aspects when people move to other countries. These are the things, these are the actual motifs that she uses in the poem. The, the group of people, the marucha, and the particular individual personalities that are presented in the sequence are people who are undergoing a process of transformation. But the important thing about them is that they're survivors. A lot of the poems imply that they've gone through traumatic experience. And again, you have a lot of motifs that relate to traumatic experience, repression, repression of cultural markers in particular. They don't want to speak their own language. They won't breastfeed their children. Um, they don't, they won't, don't want to listen to any music. A, a very akin to the descriptions of Ireland in the post-famine period where this tossed more, that the music, people didn't play music, people didn't engage in sociable activity. So they're going through this, but you get one gets the sense that they're survivors. They're not people. They have survived this, but they have survived it. They've been transformed in the process. Um, and a lot of interesting stuff has been written about the, the famine as the famine period and, and post famine Ireland. And was it traumatic and what does trauma mean? And there's a huge literature about that now. I think some of that literature actually informs and that sequence of poems, uh, the sequence of poems were they were they were written um, before, during and after that period in which we were commemorating the famine. And there were a lot of public debates about these issues. And Dolini Ronald was herself um, a participant in those debates. So I think a certain amount of 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 that whole public discourse sort of informs the poems. I think also the whole issue of opening up about um, aspects of Irish society, which were repressed in the in the public sphere and that now we have a confessional nation now with tribunals. We have tribunals set up to deal with these problems, these secrets, these dark secrets, and that a lot of these also are given expression in this poetry. What I was particularly interested in was putting people, or, or this, the, these um, um, creatures, into extreme situations, uh, putting them on the edge, on the, the linguistic edge, and on all kinds of other edges too, and uh, see what happens. And that's why I, after a while I realised that what I was writing about, what I was interested in about, was not just the trauma of the language change and its creative outcome in English, um, as well as the bad sides, but 
uh, traumas in general. And so it could easily, these poems could e e easily be um, applied to um, emigration. Because, let's say, you left, um, besides leaving your language behind you when you went from West Kerry to Springfield, you also left um, a, a climate behind. You left um, a whole way of life behind you, and you had to uh, adjust to a new one. So um, then it became an objective correlative for immigration. And then afterwards, you know, thinking of Yiddish and things, um, being in the same boat, I realised it was, it could be um, also correlative, um, uh, objective correlative for what is one of the great um, traumas of the 20th century, the, the, the extermination camps, and how, you know, Adorno said, is, how can there be poetry after Auschwitz? Uh, this is one of the ways of doing poetry after Auschwitz, is, you know, developing an object of correlative where you might begin to imaginatively uh, live the untenable and, and unspeakable um, hurt that people uh, live through. It's at times when Nuala can find in the tradition of the mermaid, for example, some way of addressing a variety of traumas, both uh, psychic, cultural and, uh, and physical, that the poems work best. Um, the, she addresses the um, psychological condition known as, as borderline syndrome, that inability to really imagine the boundaries of your own physical being in a number of other poems. These are general traumas rather than perhaps traumas which we, we, can, be, we can be sure that Nuala Nihon has felt herself. But they have a certain un urgency because the traditional material, which is all too often dismissed by urban sophisticates as having no relevance to contemporary culture, retain a power um, which has to do with folklore's ability and traditional folk narrative's ability to, to find ways of expressing fundamental human fears, the traumas that persist uh, in cultures over the transition from pre-modernity, let's say, to modern life. Well, of course, the first um, trauma for the mermaids is that they have to lose their tails and get legs. And I know the Hans Christian Andersen version of that, and again, I think it's a bit of a cop-out, except for this one line in that story that I really believe in, and that was when the mermaid took a step, but it was like um, a thousand uh, knives were going up through her. I mean, now we're talking about something that's a little bit extreme, and I think that's right. I mean, that's what I feel is right about it. And uh, I was again wondering how I would, um, you know, put this in a way that it would be uh, credible emotionally and imaginatively. And uh, I just happened to be reading um, Oliver Sacks' book, uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is about people who have brain lesions and therefore lose things about, for instance, some people have lose a sense of time and short-term memory and long-term memory. And then other people, um, for instance, this person uh, lost the, the inherent body sense that we have. Uh, I mean, this is very interesting because for until recently, this is a um, principle that ha hadn't been well known, that the fact is that we all have an inherent body image and that, um, when, that when the body is uh, damaged somehow, that uh, it's very hard sometimes to get your inherent body image in line with reality. Um, that happens in anorexia when people, you know, people with anorexia tell you that they're convinced that they're fat and they might be just you know, skin as rakes. 
skinny as rakes, but they they have this fat body image, you know, and that that they dislike, and that's that's why uh, it's an almost intractable disease. It's very difficult to deal with. Likewise, people who lose um, an arm and a or a leg or something. There's a well-known phenomenon called um, goose limb and uh, where you feel the pain. And I saw this on the television the other day, how that happens. It's when you lose um, uh, just how the fact that your your brain, parts of your brain, uh, just wires itself up differently so that you actually feel a pain. Uh, But um, it seems to you that it's in this leg that you haven't got anymore. But actually, you're feeling it in your in your in your skin or something like that in your face, but it it translates itself into this um, way this wire this hard wiring that was done you know when you had a leg, and um, it's really I thought it was really interesting. But this wonderful version I found in um, in Oliver Sacks' book was a man who was brought into hospital, and when he was in hospital, he woke up and he decided he he found that they'd thrown this dead leg into the bed with him. Now, he thought it was um, medical students doing a prank, you know. There was this dead leg in the bed, and he didn't know what it, you know, what it was doing there. So he fetched it out of the bed, and then, of course, he fell out after it because it was his own leg. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't associate it with himself because of the lesion he had in his brain. And I thought, there's my mermaid. That's the kind of situation that would arise. And it's funny. It's, you know, quite credible, and it's very extreme. It's just what I wanted. So there I had it on Verosum Hospital. Kushishi is near of a herbal ache gown nismo. Akashtik selabale viandarod for the forsa. Bogoleth gor guide varied, no slamiki fiola. Marvagatashid ni flor, ehen the kodamoira. Talam the forna as a mar le doch, is an la eleko ro hook of the jokana. Marshinhain is lorem major, is the hashian darod makasashomra. Akshahian Khid na Tiganchi. Kunasahitchi fein in the near coxen bowhead. Ken winter viegandarod lay no ken winter viekilosen. On Vanaltra a hogan noddy is a hurry i dro on Olish. Kas isha at a kangle to death agas kanelica on Sahis foot. Kas kasele a hen a do. Kahatu falum conus shulio. In the Mesa Father Alam, neither a hit a cree, drear mar a hit throck na cushity, a horse When translated by Theo Dorgan, that becomes The Mermaid in Hospital. She woke up to find her fishtail had gone, and there in the bed with her, two long, cold yolks, slats of kelp, maybe, or slabs of meat. They're having me on. They must be. New Year's Eve and half the nurses out of their heads with drink. The rest far too given to practical jokes. Ah, here, enough is enough. And she tosses the two yokes out the door of the ward. What she can't understand, just doesn't get, is how she came to be flying out after them, arse over tip. What are these two yokes to do with her, or she with them? The head nurse tips her the wink, sets her straight. This is a foot that's attached to you. And this here is another one. One foot, another. One, two. Now you must learn they're part of you. In the long months that came after, did her heart sink bit by bit as it all sunk in? 
the tedium of walking, the fallen arches. You know, when Nuala Nihon uses traditional material, she may be doing one of two things, or maybe a mixture of both. Um, she may be attempting to self-consciously locate herself within the Irish tradition, um, the sort of thing that Garrod O'Cruelly in his controversial essay spoke about he spoke there about Irish language writers who are located within the Irish language discourse and others who are not and his definition of, of being located within the Irish language discourse is Irish language writers who are um, in conversation with the literary tradition with the writers that went before them so in one sense the sort of, of um, reworking of traditional material that's to be found in Nuala Nihon's poetry could be looked on as an attempt at relocating. And some of her work would indicate that that is, um, th- that that is her strategy and that is her motivation. I'm thinking in terms of um, poems such as Ictamont Shear, where this image of travelling in a car back across the Connor Pass and this attempt at retrieving what is there and seeking to retrieve. It's sort of like Seamus Heaney and the Cades of Fields seeking to retrieve what is there and to claim it as one's own. But on the other hand, there's the sense of taking that tradition and giving it a good shake and doing your own thing with it and to hell with what it really meant or what it was. And, and I think that is very much to the fore in, in her work as the critic Brynn in Igirma that said, Ni mi an leha srian achor le makal an and uh, the opposite is what she wants to do, really, that makal and the can stretch as far as your imagination can bring it. So she uses the traditional material as a fulcrum. Uh, and from that, then she can project, you know, her imaginative sort of musings on lots of different uh, aspects of contemporary life and I suppose contemporary sort of psychological states and states of transformation and states of I- being ill at ease in the world for one reason or another that the traditional material can be used then to explore those. Namorucha agus an litriacht. Kegu will leave agus scrive a dange heineke o hanither i dír. Is grivshi a falam egan eas og gud i gordúnach skal an alán síis egan rain am ilán nua srimahe hír in snaca gudí. Bwél o vaim nú skira cariga an lás gíl. Níor harin yadar chúha a bánav is near Leader Riev Leshen Litriacht. Near Humader is near Hapader, is near her Gohena Nuder or Hafein. Baskorn Log Gnosvrecht and Duig is near Yinader and Willin or a not even Ashtahud as a Donader. An Hishin of Wirach, an Talan of Efe Riacht. Shan Skelta on Dear Fahin, no, Maiden Varaginch in the Scale Fain. Could the headlin allower narskeather? Ta Irichus Urugur Augadare, Agas Kahavinegan Tanahil er Vuran. Marshin Fain, ni vida koshev, Marisma Higginship Gurfir Nafil en dal sheer. Iske nach Megalehedi Rishdan, Bjognamur, ni screenshed drechti filiechta, no cabadili laur, and we of us. One of Nuala Nygonal's regular collaborators in providing translations has been the poet Maeve McGuckian. The merfolk and the written word. Although they were literate in their own fish tongue from the day and hour they landed, and composition was taught to their offspring until the island school was closed down by the Department of Dried-Out Islands, 
back in the 50s. The story went for fear of avalanches. They never took to the pen or cultivated the native prose text. They didn't invent yarns or fiction, donning the writer's hat. They disdained the freaks of printing and never capitalised on the fabulous, enchanted existence that had been theirs. Submarine cookery, the spellbound isle, ancient tales of Davy Jones' locker, a sea nymph bears all, are some of their unbookered prizes. Of course, they regret their fall, and many hanker after paradise. But they don't go overboard, for they know fine well that's a one-way street. And although they are a dying breed, little and large, they don't go on making a song and dance about it in chapter and verse. They leave that honour to the inhabitants of the Blaskets. In poems such as Namurucha Agus and Lichriacht, the uh, Mer people and literature, which in some way is a slightly wry account of the fetishizing of a small band of writers who uh, produced what is now known as the Blasket Island literature, that literature which fixed in Irish langu- in the Irish language initially a picture still available to us now of a dying era, but which so caught the attention of an English-speaking public through the medium of translation. Uh, there's, a, there's an irony, of course, in the fact that Nul Nihonel is probably the, the most widely dispersed and perhaps the largest um, readership of any Irish language writer ever through the medium of translation. And as many other, uh, as many other commentators, critics have pointed out, of course, there's an inherent danger in being known primarily as the producer of poems which will only be ever understood by the bulk of your readership in translation at that extra remove. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.